Well, I'm a dad, and sometimes there are questions that uh, come up that I think, you know, dads can handle or that I can handle. And uh, one night uh, last week uh, was, uh, or a couple weeks ago, there was a question that was asked that I thought I, I could be able to handle. Uh, yeah, I guess I need to fill you in. You know, I, I have three kids, and my middle uh, daughter, her name is Lacey. She just turned 16, but uh, you would think she was like 96, you know, when, when it gets to about 8.30 at night, she's, she's done for the, you know, if she has to do something else, it's over. If she's not asleep by 9, you know, she's like, the next day is just going to be terrible. I'm never going to be able to make it. It's going to, it's going to be awful. And so she, you know, the exact anxiety level starts to rise a little the later in the evening it goes. And on this particular evening, it was around 8.30, 9 o'clock. And there was a little more homework that needed to be accomplished. And, and Sherry, my wife, said, hey, Lacey, I need you to go get your softball gear out of Dad's car and put it in your brother's car so you'll have your softball equipment for practice tomorrow after school. And Lacey said, I can't do that. You know, it, it wasn't going to be possible. The 30 seconds it would take to move the bag from one car to another was going to hinder her schedule and throw off the, you know, what was to come. And the next day was going to be ruined. And I'm dad, so I think I can solve this problem. And there were a couple options available to me. I could have moved the bag from one car to another in 45 seconds. I'm quite a bit slower than Lacey is. But I could have done that, and, but I realized, you know, I have kids, and there's a reason I have kids. And so I asked her older brother, I said, Clayton, come in here. And, and Clayton came down the hallway, and my wife Sherry looked at me, and she said, don't ask him to do this. And I said, why? It'll be fine. She said, he's just going to ask, why can't Lacey do that? And I said, no, he won't. Come on, it's almost Easter. You know, he knows that, that he, Jesus, you know, the Son of God, for even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to, to offer his life as a ransom for many. He knows the Bible story. He's been to Sunday school. He's going to Bible burn this entire family. This will be great. I said, Clayton, this is what I need you to do. I need you to take your sister's softball bag from my car to your car so she'll have it for practice in the morning. He looked at me and he asked one question. He asked, why can't Lacey do that? And Sherry's just staring at me. She's just looking at me like I told you he was going to say that. And I don't know why I made Sherry like taller. Than... She's not. She's right about there, but like that. Anyway, so... I said, you know, sometimes there are just questions, there are just questions that are better off not asked. Well, I, I do have two kids in high school, and next year we'll have three kids in high school. That's sort of crazy to think about, but it's springtime, and there's all sorts of high school activities going on. My, my son's going to go to prom, and so somebody told my wife, Sherry, that, hey, you know, you might as well just buy a suit, because you can buy a suit for nearly the same price or close to the same price. You can rent a tuxedo, and so just go buy a suit. And so one Sunday afternoon, I'm suit shopping. The, my favorite thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. So we're out looking at these suits, and we pick out a suit, and uh, he said, is this one okay? And Clayton said, yeah, that'll be fine. And so we're going to get ready to go buy that suit. I said, hey, you probably need a tie because you, you probably shouldn't wear the same tie you've worn to everything in your whole life. And so anyway, we'd probably pick out a tie, and I think the tie is supposed to match 
you know, this, the young lady's dress. That's how they, the kids do it today, son. And so we're looking at these ties. I said, hey, do you have a picture? Do you know what color dress is? He said, yeah, here's a picture. And so we're trying to match the tie to the picture of the dress. And we're looking at these. And I said, what do you think about this one, Clayton? He said, yeah, that one would be fine. And so I, I turned to walk away, and he's standing behind me. And I turned back, and he is snap-tweeting away on his phone. I said, son, what are you doing? And he said, nothing. And, and I, it's okay. I speak teenagers, so I know that what he really means is, one moment, Father, I would love to communicate with you, but I need to finish this important snap tweet email. All right? And so I asked again, Clayton, what are you doing? And he again responded by saying, uh, nothing. I said, son, are you sending a picture of that tie to your date to ask if she likes the tie or not? And he said, yes. And I thought, oh, son, you're 17 years old. You know, you are a young man making your way in this world. If you can't put your foot down now, if you can't choose what you will wear on a given night now, it is a long road, my friend. And he looked at me and he said, who picked out the shirt you're wearing? And I said, shut up, <laughs> you little brat. You know, sometimes the questions we ask won't do anything but get us in trouble. Well, one last dad moment it happens all the time in our house. In our house, we have this ice maker in our freezer that doesn't work, and so we have ice cube trays. Kids, these are plastic trays that you fill with water and you put in the freezer, and then you wait for the water to freeze, and it forms ice cubes. It's a miracle. And so we use these ice cube trays in our freezer, and, and occasionally I'll pull out an ice cube tray, and there'll just be a few ice cubes left in the tray. I, I need to fill you in, I guess, on our family procedures. Everyone in our family is well aware of the procedure here, right? You take ice cubes out, you take a few cubes for your refreshing beverage, then you dump the rest of the ice cubes into the bucket that's conveniently placed next to the ice cube trays, and you fill up the ice cube tray with water so there'll be, always be ice cubes. It's this miracle of indoor plumbing and refrigeration and all of that stuff that we should take advantage of. Well, occasionally I'll pull out a tray, there'll only be a few ice cubes in the tray, and that's really okay. I'm an easygoing guy. You know, there are a few ice cubes. That's really what I want for my own refreshing beverage. I'll take those cubes, I'll fill up the ice cube tray, and I'll put it back in the freezer. On a rare occurrence, I will pull a tray out, and I'll like, boy, this is light. You know, I don't work out much, so the ice cubes are reasonably heavy to me. And so I'll pull them out, and I'll be like, there are no ice cubes. This tray is empty. Who put this ice cube tray in the freezer empty? Silence in the household right? I'll say, Doesn't, don't you know what to do when you take the last ice cube, you fill up the ice cube tray, and you put it back in the freezer? And I ask this question every time. It's a question that I ask that everybody knows the answer to, but we ignore anyway. You know, there's some goofy questions that we come across in life, and it's okay, I suppose, if we ignore them. It's okay, I suppose, if we, we don't ask them because we already know the answer. I, I guess it's okay that we don't respond to them or we don't ask them because they'll just get us in trouble. But there are also some really big questions in life that every one of us will be forced to look at and to respond to 
And we have to navigate. We have to figure out what's the answer. Where do I go from here? How do I respond to this question? And you know, I think Easter absolutely helps us to respond to the life's biggest, most challenging questions. And the story of Easter and Mark is maybe my favorite because the story of Easter and Mark just ends. Bible scholars call it the short ending in Mark because you might notice when we turn to Mark chapter 16, there'll be some more verses that follow and probably your Bible has a note that says these verses were most likely added later. And, and so really chapter 16 of Mark, if you're doing serious Bible study, should end with the first eight verses. They call it the short ending, and Mark just stops. And I love the story of Easter in Mark chapter 16 because it's not sewn up neatly. You know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a comedy show on television where there's always a resolution. It, it resembles, it reminds me of life, of my own journey with Jesus, that it's not always sewn up easily. That, yeah, there are, there are questions out there and there are answers for sure, but sometimes we struggle to find them and we have to take a few extra steps to get there. I think Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, teaches us three steps that help us to navigate life's most challenging questions. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them to the 16th chapter of the book of Mark. We'll be taking a look at these eight verses together in Mark chapter 16. Maybe you're using the uh, YouVersion app. You can find Wallula under the events tab there. And that should have all the uh, scripture references located right there for you. Mark chapter 16 as well as the uh, outline that's also present on the back of your bulletin or welcome packet that you can utilize as well. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses. This is what God's word says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll, roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Uh, see the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you, trembling and bewildered. The women went out of the, and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. All right, three steps that I think this section of Scripture teaches us about navigating and handling some of life's biggest questions. Step number one is to, to simply acknowledge that there are questions in life that aren't going away. There are questions in life that just aren't going away. Uh, our story begins in Mark chapter 16 with uh, very simply by saying when the Sabbath was over. 
And we might not think anything of it, but if we've read the rest of the story of Mark, if we've we started at the beginning and we've sort of walked with Mark through the miracles and through the teachings of Jesus, and then we've seen the bulk of Mark's gospel that's dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life, then this simple phrase reminds us, especially if we, we try to put ourselves into the place of, of the two Marys and Salome, these women who are on their way to the tomb, if we try to put ourselves in their place, then we realize that, man, it has been a jam-packed, eventful, intense three days. You know, that there, our emotions have traveled on this roller coaster. We celebrated a week ago when Jesus rode into, rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the Old Testament teaches us that kings ride into Jerusalem on the backs of donkeys. And we shouted, Hosanna. And we watched Jesus go into the temple and clear the place out. And we saw Jesus be arrested. And we heard that he was put on trial. And we saw Jesus beaten and crucified and buried. And now, after the Sabbath, as all that happened, you know, the, the crucifixion and the burial happened in the matter of hours, that rush to prepare the body, that rush to, to have him placed in a, in a tomb before Sabbath started at sundown on Friday night. And so Joseph of Arimathea uh, struck a deal with the Roman officials and took the body and wrapped him with 70 pounds of spices and buried him in, in Joseph's personal tomb. We're reminded that all of that has happened, that we've waited that whole day in Saturday, not knowing for sure what was going to happen. And when sundown occurred on Saturday, these women rushed out, you know, I don't know, to the 24-hour spice store. I don't know where they went. But they found some place where they could buy these spices, and they took them home, and they waited again. And they waited again until very early, verse 2 tells us, on the first day of the week, on that Sunday morning. I just think we learn some things about these women from these first couple of verses. First of all, we learn that I, I, don't, I don't believe they had any expectation of a resurrection. I don't suppose, if, if you had been listening closely, because if you started at the beginning of the book of Mark, and you read through to the end where we are now in chapter 16, then you would have heard Jesus say over and over and over again, I'm going to die and on the third day I'll rise. I'm going to die and on the third day I'm going to rise. But I don't think they had any expectation of a resurrection, because if you don't expect for the body to be there, why do you take these spices to anoint the body? I, I don't think they had any expectation of a resurrection. I think that they're on their way because they're on their way acknowledging that there are questions in life that never go away. They're in the middle of this crisis. They're in the middle of this tumultuous bad week. That's too big a word for me to say. Right? This really difficult week Emotions going up and down. And they just want to honor their son, their teacher, their rabbi, who they thought was their Messiah. And they're left asking that question, what do we do now? 
We were all in. But what do we do now? And I think they're carrying these spices that are really sort of a redundant act. I, I think they probably knew that Joseph uh, prepared the body for burial and that he had buried it on Friday evening. And I, I think they were just asking themselves, Where, what do we do? Well, we can, we can honor him like this. And so they went and bought spices and they headed to the tomb. I think it does show that they're really committed to Jesus. This would have been no fun. Right? Even, even after just three days in desert climate, that would have been not a fun place to be in the grave of somebody you loved for all kinds of reasons. And so it was that commitment that kept them there, the struggling through that question of what do we do now? And just like so many of us that, you know, we, we're not sure what to do, when we get to that place, we think, man, I just, I need to do something. And so very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, they're, they're already struggling through one of the life's big questions that never goes away. Uh, what do we do now in the middle of this crisis, in the middle of this hard time, in the middle of losing somebody that we care so deeply about? What do we do next? And then the next question they ask is, why isn't there any help? How are we going to do this? You know, they knew that a stone would have been rolled into place. They knew that probably that stone would have been rolled into place by having this big stone next to the opening of a tomb and then digging a ditch so that you would have a hill to roll that stone down and the, the stone would rest in that ditch. Uh, that would prohibit, you know, critters from getting into the tomb. It would prohibit that stone from accidentally moving you know, there would be no reason for anybody to expect for that stone not to be exactly where it was set. What they didn't know is that the authorities had also said, hey, we want to seal this tomb. And what that meant is they took this clay mixture stuff and they put it over the seam where that rock met the tomb. And so they sealed even that seam and they, they placed the mark of whatever authority had that tomb sealed into that clay mixture so that just like, you know, you've seen movies where they stamp an envelope for and send a message, just like when that, if that tomb was moved, then anybody would know that it had been tampered with. They didn't know that extra step was taken. They didn't know, probably, that soldiers, guards had been stationed at that tomb. And they were asking a, a reasonable question, you know, how are we going to move this rock? Who's going to help us? I'm not sure why we, we tend to go alone when, when uh, life is, is the most difficult. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's because we, uh, we don't know, just like these women, that we needed so much help. We just don't realize it. They didn't realize that perhaps that there was a guard stationed there and that the tomb had been sealed and, and they just uh, went out and, and didn't realize until they got there that they would require some help. Maybe sometimes we, uh, we, don't, we underestimate people's willingness to respond. You know, it wouldn't be so long from this moment when these same women would be running off trying to find Peter and John and when they told Peter and John about that empty tomb, man, those guys took off running to the empty tomb. John raced ahead of Peter and got there first. They seemed willing to participate in these events. 
Maybe they didn't trust, you know, the, the, on that night when Jesus was crucified and his disciples scattered and were in hiding, maybe it would be hard to really know if they could trust them or not. For whatever reason, these women seem not to be looking around for the help that maybe was there. And I know in, when times are most difficult in my life, I tend to go it alone when it's just not necessary, right? When people are willing to help. Especially if we've cultivated relationships in our life like Jesus cultivated relationships in his life. You, you don't have to go very far into his life to, to know that Jesus had this group. Uh, sometimes it's number 72, sometimes it's numbered larger, of followers that he would, he would serve with, that he would be on mission with. And then there was a group of 12 of his closest friends. And even within that smaller group of 12, there was a group of three of his very closest friends. Jesus modeled this life of cultivating, growing relationships, and we ought to follow suit so that when we find ourselves dealing with life's most, most difficult questions, there's some place to go. They were on their way alone, though, asking that question, how will we do that? Who will help? When we read verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Verse 4 just, it makes me laugh. I, I think, well, what, what do you mean they looked up and they realized the stone wasn't there? I mean, you know, it's, it's like they just don't quite get it. It reminded me of this picture. It was taken a couple weeks ago, I, I think, or a week or so ago. And my wife asked my son, Clayton, to go to the basement where there's some extra paper towels, bring up a roll of paper towels and put them in the kitchen. And this is what my son did. If you notice, he put them nicely in place. They're just still wrapped up. You know, it's hard to use the paper towels when they're in the wrapper. He just didn't quite get it. Almost but not quite. And it's just sort of, it, that's what it sounds like when you read Mark's verse 4 here in chapter 16 that these folks were on their way to the tomb and they looked up and they thought, oh, there's no rock here. It's open. I don't suppose that's really how it happened. I, I suppose somebody saw in the distance, they said, hey, do you think that stone is rolled away from the entrance? And somebody else said, I, I don't know. Maybe I can't see. Maybe it is. And so I imagine one of those ladies running ahead of the others, right? And when they get to the opening of the tomb, she says, it's not here. The stone is rolled away. Get up here. And she's waiting for everyone else to arrive. And when they get to the edge of the tomb, they just walk in. It's an amazing contrast to what happens in a few hours when John and Peter show up at the tomb and John is frozen in fear at the edge of that tomb. These women, they just, they go in. They want to see what's going on. Perhaps it's just simply the fact that fear hasn't engulfed them yet because what we learn is when they go inside, fear quickly sets in. They're dealing with life's most difficult questions. And when we do, Man, fear finds its way. First step is just to acknowledge that there are those questions that aren't going away, that every one of us will have to deal with. These questions and, and so many more. The second step is to realize that there's one answer to all those questions. There's one place where we can find an answer to how we deal with all those questions. Verse 5 says, As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Well, this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? They're on their way to a grave. They show up at the grave. The grave is open. They walk inside. Somebody's sitting up in the grave. You would probably be frightened of that. 
that would at least startle you. And, and I think sometimes that's how we read this word alarmed. Well, it's like startled, like when somebody walks into a room and you're not looking, and they say hello, and you're like, oh, man. And then you realize, oh, it's all cool, right? It's okay. There's no reason for me to be afraid. Well, this word that we, we sometimes, I sometimes read it like that, it's a Greek word that literally means terrified. I mean, there was a deeper sense of fear than that. And it makes total sense, doesn't it? Graves, tombs, death. That's scary stuff. That's the real big question in life that every one of us has to come to terms with. And here these women were face to face, or at least so they thought, with that question of their own mortality, of death. And somebody's sitting up, and he starts talking to them. Verse 6 begins in this extraordinary way. Don't be alarmed, he said. Don't be terrified. Well, let's be honest. This is a scary situation for anybody. And if we're really honest, there is one thing in life that tends to break our peace, to bust our peace more than anything. You know, God talks about peace all through Scripture. If you start in the very beginning of the Old Testament, God is talking about shalom peace. I want you to be at peace with one another and with your God and with creation. You go to the New Testament, Jesus is talking about shalom peace. I've come to bring you peace. You can find peace in me. You go to the New Testament writers like Paul in Philippians chapter 4. He's talking about, hey, you don't need to be anxious about anything, but instead you can find shalom peace through your relationship with Jesus and talking to God the Father, having a, a conversation, a prayer life with God the Father. All through the book, God is talking about this shalom peace. And as soon as sin entered the world, that peace was busted. That peace was busted. And with these women standing in that empty grave, expecting to see a dead body, they were coming face to face with the biggest peace buster of them all, our mortality, the fact that every one of us will someday die. What's that look like? What's that happen? It raises all of those other big questions in life. They were, they were trying to figure that out. And, and verse 6 just walks us through the answer to that busted piece in our life. The angel said, don't be alarmed. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live with busted peace in your life. He said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. See, every one of us is in desperate need of a Savior. Every one of us is living with that same kind of busted peace because of our own decisions, our own choices, our own sin that is present in our life. And every one of us is in the exact same place, in desperate need of a Savior. We won't find real peace. We won't find that shalom peace that God talks about without Jesus who was crucified, who made a way for us to be united, reunited, re-pieced back together with our Creator God. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins, for my sins and for your sins, for the sins of the world. He's made a way for us to experience that peace again in this life and in eternity. He has risen 
Isn't that an amazing just journey in verse 6? Don't be alarmed. I know you're scared. You need a Savior. He died in your place, but he's not here because he's risen from the grave. When Jesus, Jesus raised from the, the dead, that changes everything. It's, it's a story that's talked about all through Scripture. If you, if you look at, at Psalm 22, some of these verses are going to be on the screen for you, I think. Uh, Psalm 22 talks about this, this uh, need to be reunited with God and for, for peace to be brought back and for sin to be forgiven. We need a Savior and that Jesus is going to accomplish all of that. Psalm 22 says, deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. And the rich of the earth will feast and worship all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, they will proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, for he has done it. For he has done it. We're back at the empty tomb. The angel saying Jesus is risen. And if Jesus is raised from the dead, if he has done it, then it changes everything. It, it allows us to be in relationship with God. It restores that peace that he, he so wants for his creation to be experiencing right now and forever and ever for all of eternity. If if. If that tomb is empty, if Jesus is raised from the dead, if he has done it, then that means the entire story of the book of Mark, from the beginning to the end, is true. Then that means that the life of Jesus is true and that it culminates in his death and resurrection from the, the dead, and that provides us with life eternal. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. His death means no death for us. His resurrection means that we might experience, experience the same kind of resurrection. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 said, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, if he has done it, if that tomb is empty, because Jesus raised from the dead, then it changes everything. And that's what verse 6 says teaches us I know you're afraid I know you don't understand what peace really looks like but you can find that peace in Jesus you can look for Jesus he died in your place and he conquered even that death he is risen it's an amazing story it's an amazing story it's a huge story isn't it I, I love Mark because I think it's an, it's, an honest, it's an honest portrayal of how people respond to a story like that. And even in verse 6, the angel seems to understand it. I think God understands it. 
I know this is really big. We're dealing with some of life's toughest questions, and we have this really big answer that might be too big to swallow initially. It might be too big to take in. It might be too big to believe. And so even the angel says to the women, don't take my word for it, right? Come here, look. See where they laid him. He's not here. It's a simple invitation to investigate. And for sure, if God's messenger, this angel in the tomb on the first Easter, is going to invite these three ladies to come and investigate further, man, I would invite you to investigate further. If that angel, a spokesperson for God, would say, don't take my word for it, then for sure, this goofball on stage is going to say, don't take my word for it. Investigate further. And I think what you'll discover, when you dive into all the research, when you, when you look at all the history, I think what you'll discover is that more and more, over and over, any serious scholar admits that, yeah, there was probably this guy named Jesus, that he probably lived around, you know, the first century, around 30 AD. And around that time, he probably was executed on a cross, and he was buried in a tomb, and that, that, then that tomb was empty. There'll be some who disagree for sure, but the abundance of really serious scholars look at the history and say, you know what? We know more about this guy than we know about any other first century Palestinian Jew. One scholar said it like this, Jesus did exist. We know more about him than about almost any Palestinian Jew before 70 CE. We can trust that there was this guy named Jesus and he really lived. He was executed by the Roman government. He was buried in a tomb. And in all likelihood, that tomb in a few days was empty. It brings us right back to Mark chapter 6. Verse 6 to that empty tomb. And we have to decide how do we make sense of that? Why is that tomb empty? There's been all kinds of suggestions as to how and why that tomb got empty on the first Easter Sunday. Some people said, well, uh, these folks who showed up at the tomb, you know, this first group of three women and then the other folks who followed, they just went to the wrong tomb. Maybe the the government moved the body, maybe the Jewish officials moved the body, but they just went to the wrong tomb. But it doesn't make any sense because really Christianity, uh, remember I read that book over spring break? It, It sweeps through the world in hundreds of years. It's a thorn in the side of the Roman government. They largely ignored it initially, but it grew and grew and, and just frustrated them. It was a thorn in the side of, of the religious elite where the movement started in Jerusalem. And so if either one of those parties could have ended that movement simply by saying, no, you went right when you should have went left, they would have done that. They would have said, hey, dummies, you're at the wrong grave. Look in this grave, you'll find his body. They would have squelched it at the very beginning. Some folks have, have uh, theorized that the disciples stole the body. Well, this would have been really hard for them to do. What with the grave being sealed, with, a, with soldiers, a guard stationed at the tomb, and 
you go down a little further down the road and you see every one of these guys, almost every one of these folks, dying a martyr's death because they're preaching Jesus raised from the dead. That's why they're executed. That's why they're killed. Because of that message. I don't know how many uh, folks you've talked to and, and uh, how many times you've heard people just give in and uh, offer the truth, uh, but he usually doesn't take that big a threat. Chuck Colson said, I know how impossible it is for a group of people, even some of the most powerful in the world, to maintain a lie. The Watergate cover-up lasted only a few weeks before the first conspirator broke and turned state's evidence. See, when we're faced with something bad happening to us, like going to jail, we, we tend to spill our guts and to tell the truth. And so if this group of guys really knew, n- knew that, hey, we're just saying, we're making this story up, and we know where we really buried him, I bet one of them would have said it before they were executed. You know, some folks say, well, you know, he never really died. In fact, some of the the most well-known faith traditions in our world today say Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was buried alive, and the cool of the tomb revived him. And again, that's just really hard to figure out. How did that happen? First of all, Roman executioners were really good at their job. They knew when somebody was dead or not, and they would finish their job. They weren't in the business of burying folks who hadn't actually died. In fact, most of the time, bodies were just left on the cross until animals devoured them. I mean, there's, these guys knew what a dead person looked like. I mean, just think that through. With, if this group of, of folks, this multitude of folks on their way to the tomb were, were asking themselves, you know, how are we going to move this stone? What does a guy who had been beaten within an inch of his life, hung on a cross for hours, stabbed in the side with a spear, how does he wake up and move the rock out of the way? You know, we can get there with some of these theories and we can work on them and try to figure it out, but we're left with an answer that is the most unlikely. It's the most unlikely, but perhaps most reasonable. That Jesus raised from the dead. That he's risen. And that fact changes everything. And it leaves us really with one last step to take. It's deciding how are we going to respond to that. It's just like these, these three women at the tomb. The angel said, he's not here, he's risen. Uh, hey, I want you to go and tell the disciples. They had to choose what are we going to do. Look at verses 7 and 8. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you, trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And this is my spiritual life in a nutshell in verses 7 and 8. Right? Because we we have both sides of the coin, don't we? I mean, we have the angels saying, this is what you ought to do. Right? Go find the disciples. Go f- tell his friends that Jesus is risen. Be a part of the mission. Be on board. Live courageously. And then verse 8, they leave the tomb trembling and bewildered, and they say nothing to anyone. 
You know, it reminds me of these goofy pictures I see once in a while. You, you know the ones, hey, when I do this, I think I look like this, and, but in reality, I look like this. I have got just a couple here. Uh, maybe, maybe when you wake up, you think you look like this, but in reality, you look like that, right? Or you go to the gym, I think I look like this at the gym, but in reality, I look like this. Both these guys are really attractive guys. I don't know what the problem is, but anyway, you know, we kind of do that, right? Here's what I want to do. But in reality, this is what I end up doing. You know, that's verses 7 and 8 in Mark chapter 16. I absolutely believe that those women in that tomb looking around, seeing it empty, hearing from uh, this angel that he's risen, he's alive. Go and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee just like he said to you. I think they're remembering all those conversations. I think they're hearing, oh yeah, can you believe it? He's alive. We've got to share this story. And they walk out of the tomb. And they think there's a reason we've all been hiding the last couple of days. They think there's a reason that we haven't even talked to each other. They think there's a reason that the, the Jewish officials are angry with us and the Roman officials are angry with us. And what happens when I go and meet Peter and John and the others? What happens when I start to spread this story and I start to tell this story? You know, it's, it's interesting to me that all through the Gospel of Mark, Whenever somebody gets a glimpse, whenever somebody starts to realize who Jesus really is, they acknowledge that in fear. In Mark chapter 4, he calms the storm. He orders the storm to cease. And his disciples are afraid. They say, what in the world? Even the wind and the wave obey him. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus performs this amazing miracle. He drives out thousands of demons from this one man. And he sends them into pigs. Pigs go over the cliff. People in town are mad. They're afraid. He killed our livestock. Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. He's heading out to the boat where all his buddies are. And his buddies in that boat look out and they see Jesus walking on water and they think he's a ghost. They're afraid. In Mark chapter 9, there's the story of the transfiguration. It, it's leading up to, to Jesus entering Jerusalem, and he, he takes his closest friends to this mountaintop. And there on this mountaintop, he has this meeting with Elijah and Moses, and all their bodies are shining in this one place. And Peter is so amazed. It's that same word, by the way. It's translated in different places in the New Testament as amazed or wonderment or terrified. He's so scared, he's so amazed that he says, we ought to build three monuments to each of you. It's just like taking spices to the tomb. He's asking, what do we do now? I'm so afraid I don't know what to do. And the amazing thing is, is that even here, as those women leave the tomb, scared, saying nothing to anyone, at least for a time, Jesus is providing them with the opportunity to come around. We're reminded of it, even in, as the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why would he phrase it like that? 
Well, it wasn't so long ago, just a couple of days, right? When Peter was saying three times, I don't know who this Jesus guy is. You've got to believe me, I don't know who he is. Seriously, I don't know Jesus. Three times he denies him. Jesus, the amazing, awesome thing about Jesus is his love and patience for us. And even in chapter 16 of Mark, we see that he's built in this time for Peter to respond to Jesus. That these women run from the tomb, scared, bewildered, not sure what to do, but in not very much time, they'll be seeking out those disciples, and Peter and John will be taking off in their place, running to the tomb. Jesus provides us with these times, these moments in time, these opportunities to give in and to respond to him. You see, I believe that this Sunday morning is an opportunity for us to give in and respond to him. We're going to do it in a very simple way. That if, if you need to say yes to Jesus, you need to acknowledge that I think the most unlikely but reasonable explanation for that empty tomb is that Jesus is raised from the dead. And for the first time, I need to say yes, that Jesus is God, that he's Messiah. He needs to be in charge of my life. I need to be living in relationship with him. If you want to begin that relationship, that journey this morning, then I just want you to mark so on, on one of those communication cards for me. Just mark the box that says, hey, becoming a Christian, and we're going to get a hold of you this week. We're going to talk with you this week. We're going to help you in that journey of knowing Jesus more and just saying yes to him for the first time. Maybe maybe you want to find out more information about Wallula. You can come to that Closer Look class. You can mark that box. We'll answer some questions there. Maybe there's another step that you need to take in that journey. You can communicate that with us on that card, and we will talk to you this week, and and we'll help you in that journey to know Jesus more, to, to usher in, to invite in, to experience the peace that he offers us in this life and for all of eternity. Because he's risen, he's risen indeed.